Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. This podcast investigates the unsolved death of federal prosecutor Jonathan Luna in 2003. It is a true story. But the opinions of the hosts and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. And the credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Previously on Somebody Somewhere. Jonathan was so distracted, he couldn't keep it together. And I thought, something is wrong. He looked at Jonathan and he said, that's not a problem. What's the problem? Ken is slick, always dressed to the nines, you know, put together. And they were going at it. And I thought, oh my God, I mean, this is a ruckus. I don't need this. This is episode four of season three, The Magic Knife. I'm your host, David Payne. The federal prosecutor was found dead in rural Lancaster County. We will find out who did this. Was he trying to stage some sort of attack and went too far? I'm a crook, you a crook, he a crook, everybody a crook in prison. You were the last person to speak with him. And then two hours later, he's jumping on the turnpike and heading on a five-hour car drive around four different states. It didn't make sense at the time, initially. And then I guess it doesn't make sense now. Why? What happened between I last talked to him at the courthouse, him leaving the courthouse later that night and going on this trip? It didn't make any sense. And I remember... It didn't make sense to defense attorney Archie Tuminelli, and it didn't make sense to me either. I keep trying to put myself in Jonathan's shoes at night, and no matter how hard I try, I just can't make them fit. All Jonathan had to do that night was bang out some paperwork, draft these plea agreements, and claim victory in the morning to the newspaper when the defendants pled guilty the following morning. The only thing that changed from the time before we couldn't work this out to it worked out was this information comes out, you know, about Grace. But people in that courthouse knew about that before then. Certainly, people in the U.S. Attorney's Office had to know. Pretrial services knew. Judge Smalkin certainly knew. So it's not like all of a sudden he's got a reason to kill himself because this information is coming out. Dissecting these last few hours of Jonathan's life has become commonplace among people looking at this mystery. And likewise, I find myself poring over the details, trying to come up with some rational explanation for his irrational behaviors. One theory is that Jonathan had been caught concealing the bad information about Warren Grace, and when he was forced to go to his supervisor, James Warwick, and drop that murder charge to get a plea done, he hit a breaking point because he was effectively writing his own pink slip. But that last night, when Tuminelli went upstairs to work out the deal, Warwick seemed to already know about the Grace situation and possibly even the letter to Judge Smalkin written by Jonathan's colleague, Jackie rodriguez Coss. There's no way that Warwick went into the meeting with me, with Jonathan that evening, without being told this. Because Warwick turned to me and said, Archie, 
what's the problem? I explained, well, the problem is Jonathan won't give up this murder for sentencing. I'm sure Warwick knew all. He didn't turn to Jonathan and say, what the hell is he talking about? He just like said, well, you can do that, Jonathan. So I'm sure Warwick had to know. But it's hard to reconcile the principal Jonathan Luna as someone who would just go along with what the higher-ups wanted if it crossed an ethical line. And so I thought there might be some other reason Jonathan may have acted the way he did, both with regard to his supervisor and the disclosures about Warren Grace. Jonathan hid the ball because Rodriguez did it. She was his senior. Jonathan just went along with, you know, he didn't rock the boat. And I can't believe that it didn't have something to do with that letter, the smoking, saying, look, you know, you can't do anything to Grace. It's going to damage him as a witness. I mean, Jonathan, I believe, would have never done that. Do you think Jonathan was trying to protect her by not revealing that? I think it was more an institutional thing that somebody had to know about what happened with Grace and her letter to Smalkin. Whether it was institutional or simply chivalry towards his colleague Jackie Rodriguez Koss, we'll never know. But either way, what could it tell us about why Jonathan would return to the office two hours later, ostensibly to finish the plea paperwork, only to get up another two hours later and flee the scene? The lack of answers in this case has been fueled by the FBI's intentional decision to withhold information to the public for some unspoken reason. And it all starts with the cameras. Do you remember whether there were cameras at the time at that courthouse on that garage? Oh, yeah, absolutely. They could look at where the car Court reporter Ned Richardson explains the lay of the land at the critical start of the midnight ride. Why do you think the FBI has never released any of that video and or kind of suggested there is no video? If they're saying there was no video, that's not true, because we always had surveillance cameras. I always used to wave, because you know, I went in there every hour. I'd be in there 3 o'clock in the morning. But they could look at the loading dock. They could look at where the cars were parked, because I saw that myself. Ned, who would have had access to park a car in the garage? People that had a permit. So what type of people could get a permit. Could you get a permit? No. Who would they let come into the garage during a trial? Would the FBI agents be allowed to be in there? Oh, I, I think so, but I'll, I don't remember. They might have had some reserved spots. Was there a I, guard there that required you? Were required oh, yeah. To... Oh, yeah. Well, it got so bad we had to put a guard in a box out at the end of the driveway. So nothing went in or out without his permission. Well, he couldn't have been there 24-7, right? So, because Luna left the courthouse at about 11.38 p.m., would there have been a guard there at that point? I don't think so. I don't think so, because everything was shut down. But they had cameras everywhere. I mean, they were all over the place. It's really curious what happened to these tapes. There's been a number of stories, of course, written about this case. They always make it sound like there are no videos, and it just didn't make sense to me. Well, no, that's not true. I can guarantee you that's not true, because I, I would go in there sometimes 10 o'clock at night. 
but there was always somebody in that building 24-7, but they would be in that little office. Which begs the question, if the FBI really wanted to put this case to bed, why not release the video footage, especially because of the circumstances of Jonathan leaving? And they said that his glasses were still on his desk in front of him. I think his computer was still turned on. I talked to a couple of the uh, court security officers because when his car went out, it was really late. And somebody said, well, there was another car right behind me. And they said that car followed him all the way up and something to do with the toll booth or something. He paid for the car behind or the car in front. I don't remember that. It was something about the toll booth and that was kind of bizarre. I heard that from a couple of different people. I think they said it was a white car, but that's all I remember about that, just sketchy. The lack of at least released video evidence from the courthouse to prove or debunk whether Luna was followed that night is disturbing. But its absence is amplified by the fact the FBI has also not released any video or stills from the toll booths, the rest stops, the gas station he stopped at. Even the ATM pictures have been suppressed. That's the problem. There's not that shadowy ATM photo that shows two people, or there's not this definitive evidence of a second person being involved, which allows the suicide theory to have weight, obviously. But I don't... But just because the FBI has not released any video, it doesn't mean that evidence does not exist. Indeed, the more you talk to investigative reporters like Jane Miller of WBAL or Gail Gibson of The Sun, or even author Bill Kiesling, the thing that jumps out the most is a lack of common understanding of the known facts regarding not just the videos, but the rest of the evidence. So Jane, when you look back at the Luna case, mm-hmm over the course of now, it's almost been 17, 18 years. Do you have any different perspective than you did when you were reporting it as these elements mm-hmm. were coming out? No, you know, I, I think I thought about that the other day when I knew we were going to talk about this is, have I changed my thinking about the case? And no, I really haven't because I am so evidence-based that I look at the evidence before me And the evidence in this case is so inconsistent, you can make an argument either way with almost equal weight. That's not true in most of these cases. In most cases that don't have a definitive suicide homicide resolution, you generally, it weighs one way or the other more. This case is not like that. You can easily make the argument both ways. But to my way of thinking, Set aside all the armchair psychological profiling and look at the crime scene itself. What has been reported consistently is that Jonathan Luna suffered 36 stab wounds before he died. The issue in my mind is where were those stab wounds on the body? How deep or superficial were they? What type of knife was used? And where did the blood trail lead? Although the FBI has officially invoked its right to remain silent, Through leaks to reporters like Miller and Gibson, they have conveniently painted a picture that shifts responsibility away from them for having to solve a crime. Over time, we would continue to learn bits and pieces and more. And I came to learn through sources the theory about that it had likely been a suicide. 
and the reason for that theory was the notion that there were multiple stab wounds, as many as 36, but they were also very lightly inflicted, suggesting self-infliction, that if you were doing, attempting to harm yourself, the depth of wound would be different. Whether that characterization of the wounds was accurate has never been capable of corroboration by third parties as the feds have consistently fought efforts to have the autopsy released, which prevents us from reconciling the known medical evidence with the known crime scene evidence. There was information from sources that there that when they found the car, there was blood in the back seat of the vehicle, which would suggest that he had been there at some point, potentially against his own will, or that there could have been someone else in play. That was one of the pieces you had to try and make fit. Well, was he in the back seat of the car and then stumbles out of it at some point? None of these pieces fit together easily. The other thing that didn't seem to fit was where the stab wounds were. And I asked Jane Miller to review her old scripts for a timeline of what was reported. Can you talk a little bit about your reporting around the stab wounds and what those puncture wounds were and where they were. So here's the day that I'm, this was probably two weeks later, I did a story that said, this is what I reported. According to sources, at least a dozen of the 36 stab wounds Luna suffered were to a specific part of his body, his genital area. So according to federal sources, Luna stabbed himself a dozen times in the testicles and another two dozen elsewhere on his body all in some kind of choreographed suicidal farewell. I put the stab wounds in the testicles as part of that irreconcilable theory that somehow he was trying to gain sympathy or kill himself. I don't know anybody who stabs themselves in the testicles in either situation. Even the idea that someone could continue to stab themselves 36 times sounded just not believable. And it wasn't just the number and location of the wounds that cast doubt on intentions, but also the type of weapon that was used. And the coroner, who I, when I talked to the coroner at the time, said the stab wounds were mostly superficial and shallow and could have been caused by a pen knife. The timing of that interview with the coroner was when? This was the next day. And what did he say? He said that the Lancaster County coroner announces Jonathan Luna was brutalized with multiple stab wounds and then put in a creek while still alive, his cause of death drowning, combined with the stab wounds. You said penknife. Penknife. That's what the coroner said. The dead Could have been after? caused with a penknife. I obviously knew from my research that Luna's wounds were allegedly caused by a penknife. But the incredulity you hear in my voice was from the fact that I had never heard it was reported to be the weapon the day after he was found. So how would the Lancaster County coroner know that Jonathan Luna had a penknife? Well, or he just said, used it as an example, it could have been caused by a penknife because they have short blades. Such an odd term. I know. Okay, I'm going to read you this, okay? According to the Lancaster County coroner, Jonathan Luna died after suffering multiple stab wounds, probably inflicted with a penknife, and being drowned in the creek where his body was found early yesterday morning. So this was the next day. 
Coroner says Luna was still conscious when forced into the creek. He'd been stabbed, the coroner believed, somewhere else and taken to die into the Lancaster County location to die. And the reason it's curious the coroner said the weapon was a penknife was that no knife was recovered the day Jonathan was found, despite a protracted and extensive search by Pennsylvania state troopers. In fact, it would be weeks after Jonathan's death that a penknife would be discovered in the creek. So someone presumably in law enforcement told the coroner the day of the murder that Jonathan Luna had a penknife. And then, you know, two weeks later, after a search led go back by and find it. 150 right. troopers at the time, then they right. go back two weeks later and find a penknife. Right. Correct. I think they knew he had one. And there was another odd detail at the crime scene I still can't wrap my head around. Do your notes reflect anything about how this penknife penetrated his suit? Because he was found in his business suit. His suit, right, correct. No, I don't think that was anything that was ever resolved. That to me had an explanation. Yeah, there's really no explanation because there were also stab wounds on his back. At least that's been reported. So he had to stab himself through his suit. Yeah, right. With a penknife? Right. With a penknife. Right. And it's December, so it's got to be a wool suit, right? Yes. How do you stab yourself in the back with a penknife through a suit? Right. Adding to that question is the reporting that was done by author Bill Kiesling on the subject. Federal sources have never described the wounds Jonathan suffered in any material detail, but Kiesling tracked down one of the undertakers at the funeral home where Jonathan's body was taken. The undertaker, a woman named Kim McLeod, would not return our calls, but Kiesling reported that McLeod gave him key details on the wounds. First, McLeod said the stab wounds in the back were in the middle, below his shoulder blades and also around the shoulder blades. Second, she said that Jonathan's hands were, quote, shredded. There were, quote, long cuts between all fingers and cuts to the front and back of the hands. She said his hands were so deeply cut that they had to put gloves on for the funeral viewing. Third, McLeod told Kiesling Jonathan's neck had been slashed open on the right side and all the way around the neck. And lastly, and this is perhaps the most graphic, so apologies, but she said his scrotum had been slashed open as if the assailant had been, quote, working on it. There was a lot of confusion even about manner of death and how the body was located through those first few days. We had sent a reporter for... And uncertainty would continue to rule the day as the FBI put forth its suicide theory to Baltimore Sun reporter Gail Gibson. To explain the extraordinary number of stab wounds, the FBI would tell her the cuts were, quote, hesitation wounds. And, you know, that's when we began to hear these theories of like, well, there were hesitation wounds and they weren't that deep. Well, how does that sit alongside evidence of blood evidence if something is a more superficial wound? And so then again, and what is the wound that ultimately causes death? And while the FBI wasn't publicly explaining how their evidence fit with their theory, enough people started buying what they were selling including people close to the case, like defense attorney Archie Tuminelli. When I first heard it was suicide, it didn't 
make much sense to me. But I later learned there is information out there about people committing suicide that try to kill themselves by stabbing themselves. They have what they refer to as hesitation wounds, like he was trying to stab himself and just couldn't go through it. So when I heard that, I kind of like accepted that it made sense to me. There's so many inconsistencies to the leaks. Yeah. And all of which could be reconciled if they would release the information, but they're holding the information. So I just don't get it. I agree with you. But I like kind of put it to rest in my mind when I heard that the FBI concluded that these wounds were suicide wounds. Somebody Somewhere will return right after this break. On the morning of December 4th, 2003, as state troopers, detectives, and the coroner were trying to figure out what happened to this handsome young man dressed in a suit and found dead in a creek, a different sort of drama was playing out in the courtroom of time-obsessed Judge Quarles. And court reporter Ned Richardson was watching the clock. Well, I feel sorry for Luna when he, when he shows up because I didn't know he was dead. I mean, I, all I knew was he wasn't there. Was there any sense that something bad had happened or? From what I saw when I walked in, everybody looked like they got hit by a truck or something. I mean, it was like they were all long faced and, and very, very extremely serious. One of those long faces that morning was reporter Gail Gibson, whom Jonathan had asked to be there to cover the plea deal. I was there in the wooden benches in the back of the courtroom, and it sort of became clear as we all sat there for a minute that something was wrong. I mean, a missing federal prosecutor is a missing federal prosecutor, and it wasn't like Jonathan to just simply not be there. And this was an instance where he was looking ahead to this plea deal and to getting this done. And so the fact that he wasn't there was very quickly its own set of questions. Questions that would take on a more ominous tone as the morning went on, and it was discovered why Jonathan had not made his court appearance. Questions including whether the Stash House Records defendants had done their prosecutor in. They believed at that point that our clients, you know, were somehow, that's who they were looking at. And the theory was, these guys were involved in that rap music, you know, there's all this violence and that the defendants, like, were somehow had Jonathan killed. I mean, that's what they thought. And I can tell you, I remember when I sat down with the FBI that morning, I said to them, you gotta understand something. Until yesterday, When we did that plea, Poindexter was facing a a potential life sentence. And I said, the last person in the world that wants Jonathan Luna to be killed was my client. And I think they backed off of that pretty quickly. But if the feds were willing to back off Arky's clients, it didn't mean they were willing to back off him. And I'll never forget it. But DiBaggio is outside 
with like four or five assistant U.S. attorneys doing a press conference and he's like angry and we're going to find out who did this. And, and as they walk by, he looks at me and like glares at me. I mean, it was like, you know something about this because at this point they believe our clients did it. Like I somehow know about it. At that point, it all And it wasn't just Arky the FBI was suspicious of. It was his co-counsel, the attorney for Dion Smith, a guy named Ken Ravenel. You know, they interviewed Ken and they interviewed me. Who were the people there for your client? Who were the people there for, you know, they asked Ken about his client. Paul Hazelhurst is a Baltimore attorney who had several trials against Jonathan and who was in the courtroom the morning he didn't show. He was also professional friends with Ken Ravenel and found himself talking with him that morning as things went sideways. I just thought maybe something Jonathan was sick or you know, something had occurred. And, you know, so you kind of figured at that point, if he didn't show up for something that was in front of Judge Quarles, something really had to be wrong. I don't know if you know much about the last case that Jonathan tried. No, I mean, you know, the only thing I remember about that case is I had a conversation with, and a, and a sort of you know, joking conversation with one of the defense attorneys. And, you know, what'd you do with Jonathan? You know, why, why isn't he here? And he's like, oh, no, no, don't joke about that. So Ken Ravenel, is that the attorney you said that you... That yes, yeah. I vividly remember where the conversation occurred. You know, I think I was coming back from lunch. He was going to lunch. And, you know, was in a hallway outside of a restaurant. Because I think, you know, that was their the initial inclination of the U.S. Attorney's Office was somebody from this case had something to do with Jonathan not showing up. Which was an interesting theory, given what I'm going to tell you next. Remember that bank robbery case I mentioned in episode one? The case that Jonathan was trying a year before he died, in which the cash evidence went missing after the case went to the jury? Well, Jonathan and the FBI weren't the only people in common on that trial in the Stash House Records case. In fact, bank robber Nako Brown would be represented by the same guy arguing with Jonathan Luna on his last night outside of Ned Richardson's office. The same guy who probably had the last conversation with Jonathan before the midnight ride. Archie Tuminelli's co-counsel in the Stash House Records case, Ken Ravenel. Next time on Somebody Somewhere. Seen him on television, you've seen him in the courtroom, but you haven't seen him like this. One of Baltimore's most sought after defense attorneys found himself a defendant in court today. Ken Ravenel is facing false racketeering, money laundering, and drug charges. United States versus Nako Brown was one of the more remarkable prosecutions in my career. It's like, really? A prosecutor took the money? I don't think so. You got to remember, when this is going on, DiBaggio's trying to fire him. And, you know, like, like we like to say, you can't make this stuff up. There goes the devil telling me to lie again. But since I'm around me, says it's all right to pretend that you can get more than you give. Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. Sound design, editing, and mixing has been provided by Resonate Recordings. Original score and voiceover work provided by Hallie Payne.
Artwork provided by Evan McGlynn and Kendall Payne. If you have any information regarding the Jonathan Luna case, please contact us via our website, sbswpodcast.com. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps, and we really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Dear God, I hate to say I'm sorry, but I just want you to love people. Money.